The Business of Biotech is produced by Life Science Connect and its community of learning, solving, and sourcing resources for biopharma decision makers. If you're working on biologics process development and manufacturing challenges, you need to swing by bioprocessonline.com. If you're trying to stay ahead of the cell or gene therapy curve, visit cellandgene.com. When it's time to map out your clinical course, let clinicalleader.com help. And if optimizing outsourcing decisions is what you're after, check out outsourcepharma.com. We're Life Science Connect, and we're here to help. The fountain of youth might be a fantasy, but the biology of aging, and more specifically, the science behind the manipulation of that biology, is not only real, it's become big business. The challenge, at least the challenge for serious and legitimate biopharmaceutical companies in the anti-aging space, has less to do with biology than it does perception. Does the biotech investment community understand and embrace the concept? Equally, if not more importantly, will the FDA and other regulatory agencies lean into the idea that aging itself might be viewed as an indication that warrants therapeutic review? And from a commercial perspective, how does a legitimate biopharmaceutical company focused on combating the physical deterioration marked by the advance in our years separate and differentiate itself from the billions of dollars being poured into the consumer packaged anti-aging and cosmetic medical procedures markets? I'm Matt Pillar. This is the Business of Biotech. And my guest on today's show is a really, really good one to address questions like these. His name is Jerry McLaughlin. He's a big bio veteran and he's CEO at Life Biosciences, a preclinical biopharma company whose opening argument reads like this. And I quote, contrary to popular belief, aging is not caused by random wear and tear, but instead is caused by a discrete set of biological mechanisms that can be targeted therapeutically. Let's get to know Jerry a little bit and break into the life biosciences value prop. Jerry, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here and appreciate the introduction. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. And, uh, you know, when I mentioned in that sort of opening statement that you were a really good guy to talk to and tackle these questions with, I was referring to your biopharma uh, industry chops. You've been um, around for quite a while. You put 11 years. I don't mean to age you that way. I don't mean to say it like that, but you uh, you put in 11 years at Burke. Uh, before jumping into endopharmaceuticals, then new path, then uh, aging a bio, a gene bio. Am I saying that correctly? Absolutely. Uh, and then neotherapeutics before joining Life Biosciences in 2021. So to get to get to sort of know your worldview in the space a little bit, I want I want to kind of just take a real quick jog through that uh, that trajectory. You know, Merck onto uh, what looked decidedly like a, a number of uh, much smaller, considerably smaller, and ultimately. Uh, startup biopharmas. What was the, I guess, impetus for leaving Big Bio to, to jump into those positions? Yeah, Matt, it's a it's a great question. And having spent more than a decade at Merck, uh, an absolutely fantastic company, some of the brightest minds in the industry to this day, um, tremendous amount of relationships, a great learning experience, and, and a very successful company. Right when I joined, it was America's most admired company, five years running. Um, blockbuster products, an opportunity to experience uh, the benefit to patients bringing novel science to the market, right? Solving new problems, um, bringing you know, early stages of the cholesterol market, the osteoporosis market, among others. And so it's tremendous experience. Um, 
there does come a time and place in your career, and and this happened to me about a decade in, and really trying to make that decision: Do I want to operate in this large environment, which is affords tremendous uh, uh, tremendous opportunities, or do I want to spread my wings? And I, I, I equate it to the the bird who can't can't spread their wings and fly. And for me, the decision was I wanted more accountability and responsibility more rapidly in my career. And so I set out on a journey uh, to explore other opportunities. I quickly uh, excluded other large pharma uh, because Merck was a tremendous place. Um, and then I stumbled on this small uh, company, especially pharmaceutical company called Endo Pharmaceuticals with 125 employees. And it was a nice transition. Mm. Had revenue, had mm -hmm. products, which I would learn later in my career is, a, is quite the luxury. Uh, yeah. And, and so I joined Endo Pharmaceuticals. And uh, despite uh, today, I would consider that a large company at 125 employees. But at the time, it was uh, quite the transition, right? Um, and, and, and arriving and, and lacking resources and departments. Um, you know, we were we were undersized for for the task. And uh, but it was an overall tremendous opportunity, right? It, it gave me that accountability and responsibility, um, and it also um, expanded my network tremendously. Mm -hmm. Endo Pharmaceuticals was built off the backs of others like myself who came from big pharma. So uh, six years passed by. We went from 125 employees to 1,300 employees, and I frankly missed the early days of Endo. When there was your job responsibility and what you did every day could be quite different. Yeah. Because there were so many needs and opportunities to contribute to the company. As you grow, responsibilities tend to become trimmed and more focused, which is, which is perfectly satisfactory and rewarding for many. I think I learned in myself that I wanted to touch it all. I, I wanted to be part of, of the business development and, and the growth of the company. Yeah. And then I, as I approached uh, my 40th birthday, I, I had my Field of Dreams moment. If, if nobody remembers, there was a point early in the movie of Field of Dreams where Kevin Costner's character says, I'm 40 years old and I've never done a crazy thing in my life. When he plows down his, uh, his uh, very valuable Iowa farm field and uh, makes a baseball diamond out of it. And uh, my wife was uh, eight months pregnant with a third child. And just over a little over four years, I was offered a vice president's role. And I made the leap from this established, especially pharmaceutical company to a uh, fledgling um, pharma company, spec pharma company uh, with phase one data. And uh, I was either employee number nine or 10 because two of us began the same day. We have arguments who walked in the, uh, the office first that day. So I was either employee nine or 10. Gotcha. And, and frankly, that was the biggest transition. Um, I took a pay cut to go there. And and you walk with in. You, and you I did thought all I was under Jerry. Let yes. me just inter interrupt you real quick, though. You you did all this with your wife's wife's blessing, of course. You're you're Maybe. months pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I joined, uh, and and at first, and and for anyone who's been through experience, they may know the first two or three months, you have this fear of um, fear of uh, leaving the comfort of of the larger company, and you realize that you're extremely resource constrained. Um, decisions have to be made often on experience. Mm -hmm. um, you quickly learn to leverage your network um, for for free resources, um, for a, a, a guiding ear, um, and and so um, I quickly went from within a couple of months from the 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 fear 
to uh, the, the exuberance and, and the excitement of having all that accountability, responsibility, and being a true part of a team that was building something special to help patients. Uh, I'm interested in uh, kind of getting your perspective on, I mean, you, you talk about some of the operational, I guess, adjustments or challenges that you face making those transitions. Um, and I, I want to quickly get into one of the topics before we jump into the, you know, the, the, the anti-aging and, and, and life uh, biotherapeutics conversation. One of the conversations that you and I had uh, a little bit earlier revolved around sort of the growth of, of people to, to enable, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned, you know, at um, at Endo that you went from a hundred ish to thirteen hundred employees while while you were there. Um, tell tell us a little bit about that sort of hiring mentality and what you've learned along the way in terms of what constitutes good people to put put teams together. And I'm sure that there's nuance there and, and variability from one place to the next. But just give us a little bit on that. Yeah. So I, I think for me and the lessons I learned at Endo. We needed individuals who were not only smart, not only skilled, but they had to have the intangible of they were seeking more, seeking more responsibility. They were mm -hmm. flexible in their day-to-day -day responsibilities. Um, if things changed on a dime, um, they ran to that as opposed to sitting in fear. And we made our mistakes along the way as we grew. We had growing pains. We grew very fast. But we really quickly learned um, to hire along those lines. And, um, you know, what happened was if we brought someone in and they really couldn't contribute beyond the borders of their job responsibility, um, we had to find a way to you know, move on. And, yeah. um, but what we learned was it was that grit, resilience, versatility, flexibility, um, desire to contribute beyond their borders. That's what really determined and made the difference between success and, and uh, I think failure in those roles. Where we, we faced significant challenge when you, when you go through a period of hyper growth, we inevitably, the culture changed. And, mm -hmm. and at the vice president level, and this is one of the challenges of a small company is hire and promote from within or, or promote from within or hire from the outside. And I think it's a strategic question and a very difficult position that many executives are put in as, as a company is growing. And as a mid-level employee at the time, I, I think at times you can make the um, mistake of, of feeling like you need experience from outside as opposed to the experience from within. And we had a culture change. We had to become a bigger company with, with greater process. And, and what you lose in that at times is you lose your 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 culture of um, cooperation. You lose your culture of uh, a titleless and and uh, and titleless environment where the R and D team may contribute on the marketing side, and the marketing team may contribute on the R and D side. And and so it's an, it's a very difficult um, dynamic to maintain as you grow. And so it became ever more important in the individuals we brought into the company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you did a nice job there sort of tying that back into process, like the, the process, the culture change. What did you bring with you from from Big Pharma that kind of uh, you, you were able to tap into to manage sort of that operational process aspect of cultural culture change and, and how it impacted those employees? I've got a number of questions for you on the on the hiring front, but I, I guess I'd start with there. Like, how do you, you know, having witnessed. 
big and having witnessed growth, what did you bring along with you that helped you, um, I guess, navigate that cultural operational change and the, and the folks, the, the, the uh, reception of that, that the, the folks you're bringing on the team? Had. Yeah, I mean, so so at Merck, we, we had tremendous resources and I had the, the tremendous opportunity to work on large brands, particularly in the pre-launch and launch phase. And we had consultants and, you know, and advisors. Uh, we had we had playbooks that we built over the course of two years and and go to market uh, development plans. Yeah, and, and so, and that's great, and it's great when you have tremendous human resources and capital. When you move into a smaller environment, the needs don't change. You still need to have the planning, the process, but you need to operate in a much more lean and and cost efficient manner. So, I think what many and myself were are able to bring to these small companies is is that pattern recognition and mm. and the experience of having operated in that large company environment but then tailoring tailoring these processes to a a you know a, a much less uh human resourced environment more so than even the capital is the human resources yeah so being able to um filter out the noise and focused on what's most important, um, because at the end of the day, the principles are the same, but how you get there can be very different. So we we developed processes that early on that were uh, much more streamlined, um, allowed allowed our teams to make many more decisions, right? And we had an attitude of fail fast, fail fast and learn. And and so I think that's the true benefit. If you have an individual in this, I know we'll get to hiring later, but Individuals who have that that large company training, but can then divorce themselves from the pro the the, the uh, complexity and the level of processes within big pharma, and and take those lessons and and re-engineer them in a much more streamlined fashion. Those who are, are the individuals who can succeed. Yeah. Yeah, it occurs to me that depending on the well from which you're drawing, uh, there's an expectation, I, I guess, of different skill sets in the ability to, as you put it, uh, operate outside their boundaries, which is that my initial thought is, OK, you've got a company that grows, uh, you know, a hundredfold <laughs> over a five year uh, period. Uh, and and we have strict, you know, strict hiring criteria that we only want to bring people on who are are, are comfortable operating outside their boundaries. That's got to be extremely difficult to find that kind of person and mass. So, talk us through the hiring, like as far as hiring those people. What are some of the you know resources, tips, tricks, strategies? However, you want to you know tackle yeah. that. So, Matt, uh, I'll, I'll take this from a sort of if you're we focus on endo, but I think this applies. I think what could be most valuable to folks is thinking about the the early stage biotech experience. Mm -hmm. Extremely resource limited, and and one of the things uh, I learned very quickly. Um, when I when I left Endo and went to New Path, one of our board members said, uh, "You're in the early stage biotech world now. You should be spending about 20% of your time networking." Mm -hmm. And I didn't quite understand that advice at the time, but um, it was important, right? You you had a team of about 10 people, and um, I was the at the time the chief commercial officer, the only commercial person in the organization, and I needed to build my network in in that arena, um, and because my only Network to that point had been previously was Merck and then and then folks at Endo. Um, over time, as we look to hire, I think it's important to know what you want, um, 
develop your job description clearly as if you were hiring a recruiter. But one of the tactics we did, we all within the management team, we, we, uh, we, we reached out to our networks, to our sources, and, and we shared our job descriptions. And we would ask for feedback um, and, and recommendations. And often we would get a variety of individuals or none. And sometimes we would, the well would be dry and we would hire a recruiter and, and, you know, that would be that. Um, but I can, I can think of more than one example. And I'll give you one specific example. When I was at New Path, we were, we were looking for a head of commercial operations and myself, the CFO and the CEO all sent the job description out to a broad network, three separate distinct networks. And unbelievably, a number of names came back, but from each source, the same individual came up as high on the list. Hmm. And frankly, that was one of my best hires ever, ever. Yeah. Rentist employee fit the culture, had the skill set, had the mindset. And I think it's a, it's a tremendous advantage when you have your, your team with the network of folks who know the company, know the individual within the company, and then make those recommendations. So one, it saved a tremendous amount of time. And two, it's shaved resources from not having to hire an executive search firm. So I think those are the types of things we do from a, from a networking perspective. I'll give you a, a few other examples that I think are that, are, that could be relevant. Um, an individual I met at my time at Endo, tremendous potential, very young commercial um, individual who you just meet them and you know they, they have, there's something special. And I never worked directly with this individual, but met in meetings and at, at you know, outside meetings. Um, we kept in touch and I served as a bit of a mentor. I'm a bit over a decade older than this individual. And this was in the 2005 timeframe. And as we got to know each other, I, I, would, um, I would give him some recommendations. And I said to him, one day I'm going to make a phone call. And you're coming. And it wasn't until 2018, and I, I took the role of CEO at Neos Therapeutics, and we needed to make some changes. It was a turnaround. Mm-hmm. My first call, two days on the job, I called this individual. And I said, it's time. And uh, fortunately, he was in a position where he could make that decision to leave his current opportunity. And, uh, and along, he came for the ride. He's still there to this day. We were acquired two years ago. He still is, still is uh, well engaged with that company, doing great work. Because yeah. he brought unique skills, uh, unique leadership, and and I had trust, and I had basically observed his behavior for the last thirteen years before that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one example. Two, as you build your network, I was looking to hire a general counsel, and uh, we didn't have a general counsel in the company, but we were finally going to hire a general counsel, and it's, it was a challenging hire at the time. There was a lot of competition, um, but I tapped into uh, a network that I. Over the years, it just made through the small biotech community in Philadelphia. And we had hit it off, and uh, this individual gave me the name. Perfect solution for your situation. He knew my situation as a mentor. Um, and there you have, um, end up being our hire for general counsel. And it's a phenomenal partner. Phenomenal yeah. partner. Uh, and helped us through some very difficult times. It helped us uh, build our company. And, and then, you know, I, I look at that. Um, as, as a couple of good examples, how you tap into that, that network um, to, to make really good hours. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Tapping into that network. I mean, you, you mentioned a, a pretty extraordinary story where all three uh, 
you know, all, all three veins produce the same same gold, so to speak. I imagine that tapping into multiple networks uh, and, and deploying that strategy would also give you a good diversity of response. Like it would increase the diversity of response rather than just leaving this to a, even a recruiting agency, right? Like it diversifies the the, the pool. I think so. You you actually uncover candidates that, frankly, you may have never known existed, and they they aren't in the traditional executive recruiter pool, which tends to lean bigger pharma, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it gives you a greater diversity. Um, uh, in a in a pool of candidates, so I highly recommend that. It's a lot. Of, it, it's initially it's work to build that network, but then it becomes a natural evolution of your relationship. Yeah, this, yeah. you're constantly updating and, and sharing your experiences where you are with your business, your challenges. So as they're as they're as they're thinking about you know, how they can help, um, it becomes clear to them who might be great candidates that you may never met or heard of. Yeah, I'll give you one more example of. of um, is be a recommendation for folks on how to recruit. Um, once you've worked with someone in a small farm, small biotech, um, and you've been through the challenges, right? It's easy on the good days. It's easy on the good days when you have good data and you're flush with cash. But when you're tight on cash or you have uh, the inevitable uh, speed bumps or setbacks, you really learn a lot about an individual. And, and when you're short-staffed, our current chief scientific officer, she's absolutely amazing. One of the best professionals I've ever met. I met her... Um, nine years ago, mm-hmm. on the aging bio. Yeah. And here was a PhD neuroscientist who had worked in big pharma and was mostly focused on you know, discovery through proof of concept. And when I joined, she was not only doing that, um, she was leading the clinical development efforts for a phase two project. She was working on formulation development and managing a, a, a contract research organization. Mm-hmm. Right? All the while managing multiple grants with the NIA, and, yeah. and so when you when you work and just tremendously great leader, um, one of those individuals that just has an, a, a, an an innate ability to problem solve, and which are all critical critical skill sets in in a, in a startup organization. And I'd say frankly, sometimes you have to look at that even over their you know, the jobs on their resume are important to have therapeutic experience. That's all great, right? Skill sets we need to survive and thrive. So I called her when I joined like Biosciences and we had um, an opening at the senior level and it looked like we might have an opening at the senior level in the R&D team. And she said, no. And my response <laughs> to her was, I know you're saying no, but I'm hearing not yet. Yeah. And we had this conversation for a year. Yeah. And eventually she agreed to consult and, um, and eventually uh, another six months later or nine months later, uh, the opportunity arise, arose where she was at a, a nice point in her current opportunity um, where she can make the decision and, and she joined us full-time earlier this year. And so that, 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 persistent, that persistence pay, paid off. Absolutely. Uh, it's also an important lesson around, uh, you know, your, your ask started early. You've got to be strategic. If you're filling a, a strategic role, you know, let's say you said chief science officer, which chief, chief scientific officer was obviously important, but you look at some of the more kind of timely roles like chief regulatory officer, chief commercial officer, uh, You've got to take that buffer time into account, don't you? You can't be like, "Well, hey, we need this person next month, so let's start looking for them now." Right. You have to. You have exactly right, Matt. And you have to look a year, two years, three years down the line. We currently have planned our, based on our business plan, we have a hiring plan out for the next four years. So, yeah. based on, and that will change many times. 
yeah. but we have an idea of what we'll need and when. And and so there's a couple things, right? You want to build, continue to uh, network and and identify potential candidates for down the road. Two, identify candidates in more junior positions who you think have the opportunity in a year or two's time to develop. Uh, we, we hired an individual a year ago, phenomenal attitude, um, tremendously smart in a project manager role. And she was looking for an opportunity to not just be focused on one little thing, to learn more about the company. I said, well, you better be careful what you ask for. And we laugh about yeah. it to this day. Right. Join a company as employee number eight. And yeah. uh, um, so I think we've given her more than she asked for, but this is what you learn, right? You put people in, 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 a, in a situation, hire really good, talented people who have that will. They have the skill and they have the will. And, and she has blossomed tremendously to the point where we've expanded her role. Uh, she's yeah. normally product manager. She, she's an R&D, right? specifically an R&D and helping us run a project, uh, one of our programs. And I think those are the types of things you need to look for as well. So it's not just hiring for where the position, you know, where we are today, but thinking about, as you mentioned, down the road, what we'll need and starting those searches informally now. And then yeah. also hiring positions with individuals who you think can build into another, you know, a next level role. Yeah. Yeah, I want to uh, I, I want to start to move on here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one last question about about hiring. You you shared some some po- I, I guess some anecdotes that I'd put on the anecdotes I'd put on the positive side. Uh, tell us a horror story or two. Yeah, so I've got yeah. I've got to break that out of the drawer, Matt. The, you know the the, the failures, <laughs> the ones we hide in the drawer. Um, well, I've been doing this for you said I'm a veteran. It's been 33 years, and uh, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. A few in hiring. I've been pretty fortunate. There's a lot of great people in biotech, and, and and even the bad hires want bad people and not talented people. And I always I say, I, you know, in many ways, the fault is on myself and our team for probably not putting that individual in the right environment. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's there's a couple of cardinal rules and lessons I can take. Um, despite the time pressure, as you mentioned, don't settle. Don't settle. It's it's critical to remember that in, in a biotech of five, ten, twenty people. Every hire has a meaningful impact on the culture and productivity and the organizational dynamics. Think about it. If you're nine people and you go to ten, that's ten percent of your that's ten percent of your culture right there. Yeah. And depending upon that individual, can have either it's either going to have a positive or negative impact. And involve you in a in a positive way or can be distracted. There's no no neutral. Usually not in the middle. There, there's no neutral. There's no middle for you. Not neutral. Uh, yeah. If they're neutral, they're probably not going to be good in this company, right? They, right. They, right. Folks are fiery, right? That's yeah. to be a good fire. Um, and then I say, be careful about just judging and stereotyping based upon the companies and the jobs and the resume. There is a, particularly as in a difficult search, like for years, regular hiring regulatory is very difficult. We're not at the point we need that now, but be careful of that and be careful just looking at education. You need to balance that with looking at the skill set and the softer skill sets, the leadership, the execution focus, the ability to balance process and speed, discipline, um, ability to navigate in in, in, uh, um, uncomfortable or or unclear situations, right? Ability to handle adversity, how they handle adversity. Um, Those are critical skills in, in in a biotech. Um, that we need. We need someone who's going to step up and voice their opinion and not be not be afraid, right? In front of a board yeah. member, in front of an investor and, and in front of each other. 
right? And and so um, those are things we learn. So the example number one, I, I'm not avoiding your question. So the, <laughs> the first example, um, I was having very that difficulty, and I will I'll, I'll keep this pretty somewhat general, just to just to, it's not the individual's fault. Having very a difficult time hiring a VP level position in a small one of the small buyers. And it went on and on. The search went on and on. And this wasn't a good example. Perhaps if I lesson learned is start recruiting well before you need the position. So we were having a difficulty finding someone that, that fit the DNA, that fit the experience for the position in hiring. And I think I was worn down, but we, we brought somebody in, a very talented individual, very talented. And the, and the individual has gone on to be very successful, very successful. But there should have been some warning signs. Mm. As far as a cultural fit, uh, the individual came to one of the uh, interviews with a an organizational chart of their expected organization over the next year. Which like the like their, their the department that they yeah envisioned. the department they were going to build yeah yeah and you're probably <laughs> Matt you're probably saying what what were you thinking right. Well, I mean, I've interviewed and, uh, enough, you know, at, at this point in in the podcast's uh, chronology, I've interviewed enough new and emerging biopharma CEOs to know that, like, you know, the, the resources you usually don't support every VP I, I hire coming to me with a complete org chart for or, org chart for their department. Yeah. And, and I think here's the big, here's a big one, I think, that, that where we can assess whether this is the right place for someone to be highly successful. Because I think there's, like I said, there's there's a, always a right place for someone to be highly successful. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start hearing words like my, yeah. as opposed to our, and I'll, I'll, in case someone doesn't quite understand that, I'll, I'll say what I mean by that. And it had to do with budgets and my budget. And I had to sit, uh, sit really down and say, no, there's, a, there's our budget, right? We're, yeah. we're a biotech. And, and uh, this individual wasn't in direct R&D project running a project and there's our budget we're developing therapeutics to help patients and priority is the, the dollars to support the projects but it's that that mindset it's my budget and that's something from big pharma right because we're taught in big farm protect your budget right yeah your budget against other against other uh, departments and, and other projects and i think that's a mindset that perhaps i missed uh, in that situation um, and uh, the other is, I'll say conversely, so that's one from a hiring perspective, Matt. The other is you come in as a new executive and CEO or, or a department head in a small biotech, and you're assessing the talent, you're assessing the culture, you're assessing the fit and, and the technical needs of the company. And I was in a position where it's clear to me, and based upon feedback, that we had an individual who uh, was not a cultural fit. Right, um, was disrupted, was not a team player. And in a small company, one of the resource constraints, it creates a lot of stress and, um, on, the, on the leadership. And this is a leadership level individual. Yeah. And I made the classic mistake of, I can fix the situation. Mm. And um, we, we made attempts. We even brought in some help, right? We brought in, we brought in a resource to help uh, uh, remedy the situation, but of course, nothing changed. And and my lesson was when you come into an organization as a leader, you have a short period of time to assess and make definitive decisions. If you don't make the right decisions, the other the other individuals on the leadership team know you need to make that call. And and it can disrupt the overall uh, dynamics of the team. So I think you know my, my advice and my lessons 
um, in those situations. It's just as important as the hiring is determining who's, who is a part of the team as the mission evolves, as the needs evolve, um, both from a company's perspective, but I think equally as important from a, from a dynamic perspective. Successful manufacturing of both AAV and plasmid vectors continues to drive the promise of treating genetic disease. Join us as we discuss how manufacturers can set themselves up for success by optimizing processes, adopting automation, and more. The pod is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva, a global provider of technologies and services that advance and accelerate the development, manufacture, and delivery of therapeutics. Check out their resources at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash Emerging Biotech. All right, I'm going to I'm going to shift gears here. I'm, I'm not going to say I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to I'm going to try to gracefully segue. Here, sure. Here's my here's here's my attempt to at gracefully segueing to uh, propping life buy up for the mission at hand financially. My my buddy and frequent guest on the show, Alan Shaw, likes to say that investors don't bet on horses. They bet on jockeys, you know, uh, which I like. I like to to borrow that now and then. So we talked about the jockeys. You got a stable of good jockeys. We talked about how you ended up with that stable of good jockeys. Now you've got uh at, we'll shift gears specifically to life bio. Now you've got a um I don't want to say formidable challenge, always a formidable challenge to to raise enough money to, you know, continue operations and, and move through the clinic. Uh, but perhaps a, a bigger challenge in, in this market, as I ascertained from the outset of the conversation. Um so tell us about that hiring strategy. Uh, give, give us some thoughts on, uh, you know, wh- what knowing full well that uh, that this was going to be a differentiation challenge in a crowded uh, community of biotechs with their hands out. What was your what was your uh, sort of mo and philosophy going into the fundraising scene? Yeah, from from a strategy and a perspective of preparation. Well, first thing I'd be remiss. We have an amazing executive team, right? And, and and I was fortunate enough to be able to hire a CFO and join mm-hmm. Biosciences. And, and the CFO have tremendous amount of experience, both in private and public companies, raising capital, both in private and public companies, uh, tremendous deal experience as well. And and brings a, a discipline and a um, steadfastness and an approach to uh, investing and has been a real leader for us in, from a process development standpoint. So much like a marketing plan, there's mm-hmm. a, a lot of work that goes behind what ends up in a final presentation that you're out talking to investors, right? And, and so we look at it as first understand the market environment who are your competitors? Um, what what the value do they bring to the table? What is their positioning? How are they already positioned? What are you know with, with investors? Um, so there's sort of that market scan knowing where you're going to compete. And then it's really looking at and, and really challenging yourself over the duration of the investment thesis and beyond uh, um, or raising capital. What is your plan? It'd be, you'd be surprised how often folks don't have a plan. Yeah. So um, we spend an, an, an awful amount of time, right? a large amount of time developing our strategy, aligning on a business plan, right? aligning on a business plan, knowing that's going to change over time. It's biotech. Things change. But, but developing a plan, um, and out of that, you begin to develop an, uh, an investment story or investment thesis. Um, at the end of the day, the, the question is, why should investors get excited and why should they invest in you? 
mm-hmm. right? And so it's our mission. It's the management team. What problems do you solve? Right? Where, where do you bring value? What problems do you solve? Um, what are your capital requirements to get there? What are your achievable milestones for this investment? Right? What am I going to get out of this investment? Yeah. Um, we have the intellectual property, the competitive landscape. So you have a business model there, right? And then, and then I think there's some other. There's all the bases. Everybody's doing that. And I, and and then I think you know one of the things we really do is, and it's it's a bit scary for a small company, right? We're a handful of people, and and we assess the current capital environment and deal. Um, you know, to do that, you leverage public data. You lean in hard to your banking relationships. They're a tremendous source of, uh, of ongoing data, right? They have armies of analysts who produce these reports. They can give you, they, they keep up the data that's going on in mostly public markets, but they have a, many have a keen eye on private markets as well, where we are. So that's a tremendous um, source of data and market intelligence and market trends, what's happening. Uh, so you, you take all this, and then you tap into pulse gantry network. The industry is also connected. Um, so once you do that, you, you, then you're identifying. We, we've created a, a laundry list of investors who either have invested in in rounds close to near us, right? You know, we're going mm-hmm. to go CSD. They've done BC or beyond or D. Um, we look at you know trying to exclude those only to start up right? initial seed. Uh, we make that list. We, we, we uh, try to identify where they have an affinity for from stage investment, from their categories, where they are in the stage of the fund, right at the end of the life of the fund, and they just raised a new fund. Um, do they leave or do they follow? Right? We're trying to identify all these attributes of the fund because it's overwhelming. Even, even eliminating a, a plethora of investors, we have a, a list today of probably 400 plus investors. That's mm-hmm. not so we continue to, as we go forward, we'll continue to prioritize, ratchet down, and make our our menu, our, our wish list, and then and attack the problem there. So that's on one end, right? How do you, in a in a, in a world where your the most precious thing is your time, how do you best you know, set the stage for success instead of just instead of just wasting your resources? And then and then I think there's a, a the other part of preparation is. How do you prepare for delivering the story? And so there's delivering the story, and then there's the inevitable questions that are going diligence in the meetings. Yeah. And I think I mentioned this previously, but and our CFO has been a great driver for this. We have a, a list of hundreds of questions, potential questions from all aspects of the business, from the science to our programs, intellectual property, finance and strategy, um, um, markets, competitive environment, um, personnel. Like history of the company, and on and on and on, and so we keep a running tab from all of our meetings, but also um, from our experience, knowing where these questions are. And we all we divide and conquer. Yep. And we keep this running tab of questions every time we have a meeting, or, or periodically we we revisit the questions and we update them um, with most current issues, and that will evolve over time as markets change, as competitors change, as you generate more data, uh, these questions will just evolve. And, and so that can help you because you want to spend as much time staying focused on the core message with the investors. And so being able to answer, you know, they ask you answers to back to the message of why they should invest. It, you know, the less you're prepared, the more you deviate from the question. And then I think that the ultimate culmination is 
the actual marketing tools, right? The investors that and we're spending an inordinate amount of time always refining and building investors that because it's a 20 to 25 slide max story of view. Yeah. And this is the first impression. Um, and it doesn't matter you build one page or if you build your outreach emails. See, the whole process is a whole lot of work, right? That's the duck under the water paddling, right? And then and when you're in front of it, when you're in front of a potential investor, um, you want to do your great I got to ask you a question about the 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 uh, the database of questions. <laughs> so you keep this, you know, you keep this list or this database of, mm-hmm. of questions uh, that you've been asked that you could potentially be asked. You know, mul- multiple source source from um, multiple locations, uh, plus plus responses, right? Like you know, um, uh, and you do this. Uh, I'm assuming to to avoid, you know, obviously to be be prepared, do the responsible thing, and be prepared. Know yourselves. And and also avoid surprise. Um, do, do you ever get surprised, even, oh. even with this level of preparation? Oh. Like, are, well, are you frequently? We, like, we work in a business with tremendously intelligent people. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's interesting, right? We're all, in my experience, I've been doing this a good while, right? And, and from investors or business development, right? It's all the same. And and um, it's interesting. Uh, individuals are um, are. Influenced by their own experiences, their own education, mm-hmm. uh, or backgrounds, which sure. no two are the same, and everybody has a little bit different experience. And then there are times when a question is is really just to challenge and to see how you respond. Um, it may not be even relevant, right? It's a little bit of a test. And, and frankly, questions do come when you're in a competitive environment where there are others in in your same quote unquote space. Um, those questions will evolve as as Often there are two or three, and or two or three companies with this in this own therapy, this uh, same therapeutic category, um, in front of these investors on an ongoing basis, and yeah. so that will questions will evolve over time. So of course we get some problems. Of course, we like to be ninety nine percent prepared, but um, you know, there's always something there. Well, that's good. I mean, it's good to be surprised. You can go you, something and, to and take that, back it's to. It's okay. People have to know it's okay to say, "Great, you know, thank you." I'm not. I don't have that right now. I'm not. I'm not sure that's. But the back one. That is, yeah, it's yeah. it's better than the alternative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus, it gives you some some uh, additional data to add to your 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 that's questions right. at database. Take that back to the office. Um, yeah, that, that that's fantastic. And I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna dovetail from there from from you know from that unique and perhaps surprise question uh, uh, concept that I just brought up when we start talking about some of the differentiators that life has to create, you know, in, in this space uh, from an investment standpoint. Um, but, but before we get to that, um, the last time you and I spoke, you were, uh, you, you spoke a, a little bit, um, you expressed a conservative uh, appreciation for, uh, for pragmatic valuations from the investment community. So tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about your, your philosophies on the danger of high valuations and how your conservative approach might align with, uh, you know, sort of the Silicon Valley mindset of investors. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, to me, it's just it, it's pragmatic, it's practical. Um, investors, we all individuals, well, they invest to make money. Right? There has to be an investment thesis that allows them for the risks they're taking with their capital to uh, achieve a, a gain in value, um, and I think. Sometimes um, companies at the early seed stage or even in Series A, if it's not with 
often than not with a biotech evaluation plan, a biotech investors, and the evaluation kept to become inflated. And then so when you know our business is and, and I say this tongue in cheek because it's an amazing business and I love it. But if you want long timelines, high costs and high risk, it's the perfect investment for you. Right? Yeah. Perfect yeah. investment. Right. Um, so in order to mitigate that risk, investors they have to manage valuation funds investment, right? If it gets out of control, it puts so much pressure on everything to go perfect for them to make money. In addition to all the other risks that come along with our business, mm-hmm. right? So the investment piece is then and And so the risk you have is if your valuation, um, your valuation escalates beyond the points where um, the next round of investors can see an upside, right? A, a, a reasonable upside if you take your milestones, um, along with all the rest of the days with that. That's a difficult conversation to create. Right? This becomes a difficult point. So it either, you know, it's, it's either, it's just not going to be worth your time to do the work, or, or, or the company will face a significant downturn. And, and, and that's never fun, right? It's happening all the time right now. But if the company is built logically and, and from the beginning, um, and, and the management team, the uh, investors realize that you know, there's much more value to be made in a stepwise approach, it becomes attractive to investors. Um, and we may not like it, but but um, it is the it is the uh, tried and true way I think to have a good relationship with um, both existing investors is to um, keep that keep that valuation tempered early, allow the science and the milestones to drive the value. Yeah, yeah. You joined uh, you, you joined LifeBio at sort of the I don't know I, I guess it was either early or or like early mid uh, kind of economic drop off like capital markets drop off uh do you see that changing right now i mean are, is the pendulum swinging and in, in yeah i say first of all we were very fortunate we actually closed our series c in january of 2022 so we raised over 80 million dollars and so we were very fortunate in, oh, as, yeah as things were falling apart right yes uh, and uh so we feel good and that we have you know plenty of uh capital to operate our business plan we didn't have to make changes right we made the right business decisions um which is a nice uh, I think uh, many of my colleagues out there. It's nice when your your business plan drives drives the uh, the effort instead of the finances, and so we're able to execute on our plan. I will say I was really glad in 2022 and the early stages of 2023 that we were well financed and um, to keep mm-hmm. our heads low. Uh, I think now as we start to think about financing, um, uh, as we move forward, which we're going to talk about later where we're headed, uh, we're starting to see. I think. A, 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 a desire among investors to look at very interesting novel biology, uh, novel science, to as in our business addresses looking on the news. Um, we we announced some data earlier this year, some non-human primate data, and, uh, model. and on the heels of that, we did which uh, we did have uh, significant uh, outreach from investors. Uh, who are now interested in space and want to see what's happening, um, and that's been a good sign. And I think I think you're starting to see overall some movement in in uh, capital markets. Um, there have been some IPOs. We're seeing more. We're seeing more um, uh, big pharma 
um, deals occurring. And uh, many have told me that's a good leading indicator as, as pharma uh, begins to become more active. Um, it kind of opens our market. So I, I feel like we're still, we're still working through um, the tough days. Um, but I, I, I'm starting to see anything of uh, folks looking for new opportunities instead of just preserving capital for to um, to uh, uh, support existing investments. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you know, it, it occurs to me as I sort of alluded to that this this space in particular, from an investor standpoint, could could potentially. I'm not going to make assumptions, but could potentially be somewhat polarizing. Like there's a whole giant biotech investment community out there that's like, yeah, you know, show us some some solid proven data around a modality that we know, and we're going to jump on that you know, on that train and, 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 you know, uh, approaching, uh, attacking an indication that is well-defined and that we know, uh, and we're going to jump on that train. And now, and then we have, you know, then we have this concept of like, yes, we're going to uh, attack some specific age-related indications, but the bigger picture here, the, the the longer term play is, you know, to, to treat aging as though it's therapeutically uh, manipulative, you know, we, we can ma- manipulate it therapeutically. So, so tell me a little bit about that. Like, how do you clarify, uh, where the company sits sort of on this anti-aging continuum and differentiate to the right folks who are going to be receptive to that message. Cause not, not everybody, I, I think you'd agree. Not everyone's going to be receptive to that concept. No, that's a big question. Big question. So I know, I'll say I, I'm terrible. I'm, my hat, no, no, I've got no, a no, bad no. habit for these. Question. I mean that, I mean that in the right way because it's mm. such a broad space. I'll say it clearly. We are a biotech company. And we adhere to the principles of biotech, um, and and we're focused on advancing therapeutic candidates to address significant unmet medical needs yeah. for patients with age-related diseases and and diseases that have established regulatory factors. That's our near-term goal. So, period, end of story. We have, you know, if you look under the hood, you'd think we were like any other biotech. We're staffed with with individuals, the executive team, and and Additional members of the team who've been there. Um, we've been at Big Pharma, run, run programs at Big Pharma. Um, we hold ourselves to that standard scientifically. Okay. Um, our goal, our goal, this is where our goal, our goal is to reverse and prevent disease and extend the health span, that is, the healthy lifespan of patients. We think there's a lot to improve there. Today, too many, too many people. Um, their health span is is insufficient. Right? They spend the last ten years of their life in poor health. Um, mm-hmm. Our goal is: can we can we flatten that curve? Can we extend the years of your life that are healthy? Yeah. And, and as a byproduct of that, people live longer, probably. It may be a side effect, right, of, of living healthier. Um, and so that's our goal. You know, our, our our we have rejuvenation programs. Yes, they they target foundational drivers of aging processes that contribute to the aging of cells and, the, and their susceptibility to disease. We believe that we can restore these aging cells to a more youthful and resilient state. That's the difference, right? When I was at Merck, we were treating age-related disease, and people with high cholesterol and heart disease, people with hypertension, people with osteoporosis. I, I think the subtle difference here is that we're targeting biology associated with the aging process. And the goal is not just to treat disease, treat symptomatically, but our goal 
we want to, and we would be disappointed if we can't prevent and reverse. And it's really that can we reverse disease? Can we take someone who has, who has lost digital function and store some or you know, most of that digital function? That's our goal. That's our goal. By targeting these underlying processes that are involved with the safety process. I mean, there are a host of other things involved in it. It's your lifestyle, environmental factors, but but we believe science supports, and so far we're able to we've been able to demonstrate in the primates that um, we can, in fact, preserve cells. We believe we can we can rejuvenate uh, injured cells. Now, and we have indications of, like in, in the case of an optic-optic model, we believe we demonstrate that we have the potential to restore, in that case, visible function. So uh, I think that's the subtle differences. But look under the hood. If you meet with us, it's we run this like a biotech. We have decision trees. We make tough no go no to go decisions. Right? We have uh, detailed um, preclinical plans. We have uh, regulatory experts who work with big pharma or gene therapy companies, right? So all that is uh, very, very akin to what you see in space. I, I think in our in the broader L space, I'll call it. We don't really use that term here. Um, you know, there are. Um, it's unfortunate, right, that consumer products and over the counter products bring a, a different perception of the space. Um, now, ultimately, could our goal? It's with evidence and time. Can we can we get to a point where we, we think we can? Affect aging. We'll see. We'll see. But we, mm-hmm. we have a lot to do now, and and the first step is to um, target diseases of aging with our biology to affect change. So, long with the answer to your question. No, it's that, it, that's what we're about today. And I've aligned the company skills to that end. Yep. Not necessarily long uh, winded answer to, uh, to, like you said, a big question. Um, I'm curious about about sort of this will give you an opportunity to maybe talk a little bit about the the pipeline itself, because I'm curious about the boundaries that that a company like like Biosciences puts on uh, initially, like right off the bat, like looking at where we're going to go um, around age related disease. That's obviously up for the definition of age related disease or the limits of age related disease is definitely up for up for philosophical and scientific debate. So, tell us. Um, you know, I guess what boundaries you start with in terms of the indications that you're going to go after, and how that has informed your uh, your pipeline today. It, it, so it starts. March, is there an unmet medical significant unmet medical? That's our biology. This is a promise with our biology. Proof of concept for it. Right? So you test the test the biology, uh, and then is there a, is there a clinical development and regulatory process? Mm-hmm. That's that's the limit, and and I think. Where we focus today isn't something where because our, our programs are around cellular rejuvenation. Um, can we target cells and tissues and, and rejuvenate these cells to a more youthful and um, uh, uh, resilient state? And that's that's really the the balance, right? It's not limited as right now. It happens to be our lead programs in ophthalmology. We're yep. clearly looking at maturity generation. We're clearly going to look at other areas could be hearing loss could be others and um, you know our our science will take us there right we have a we have a step one in the, in the process is creating the concept with our lead programs and then and then where it takes us from there um will be an interesting i think tangential so we'll stay within that theme of of cellular rejuvenation but it may take us in many different organs and tissue systems right? 
Um, uh, one program, a flagship program, is a partial opportunity program platform, which uh, uses three transcription factors, which keep it simple as LSB. Um, given our IP around LSB, um, we will continue to explore and research different target organs and systems for age-related diseases where you have aging in your cells and that will drive our pipeline. And so our second program is a term, Sheparamida autophagy, which is in discovery stage. Um, it, it, how it relates to age-related disease and age-related function and aging is there's a, our, our body is tremendously efficient, has a tremendously efficient recycling process for, for misfolded and unwanted proteins at the end of their useful life. Um, chaperones escort these proteins with a certain motif for cardiac destruction. They escort them to the lysosome, the entity or the separate Unfortunately, LAMP2A, uh, its expression diminishes as we age. It's been proven in animals and humans. And so the ability of, of our body to uh, recycle these proteins uh, diminishes and they end up and of aggregating, accumulating uh, um, in the form of oligomers, and they disrupt cellular signal. And this has a uh, potential impact in a host, host of disease states, including neurodegenerative ophthalmology, among others. So it's a tremendous opportunity as well, um, finding this age-related aging issue and targeting something that is part of the aging process and resetting and restoring that and rejuvenating that process came up to be a state. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Uh, I know, I know we're running short on time here, Jerry. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of fast forward a little bit, uh, but I want to stay on this, uh, this thread around sort of the perception and and appetite in the market for um, age related disease therapeutics. What do you see, as I referenced, the investor investor community, like you, you, there's going to be folks who are super hot on this and, and folks who, who don't want to touch it, just like any other, you know, any other approach, I'm sure. Um, what are you seeing from big pharma? Like if you if you look out d- down the road, and I'm not going to assume what your exit strategy might look like at LifeBio, but but let's say if it were, you know, to to, to appeal to big pharma, uh, what do you see happening in, t- in terms of their interest? Uh, here's like I say, Matt, I can't speak specifics, but uh, when I arrived two years ago, there was already a lot of interest. There is a, I think we're moving from um, inquisitive to seeking understanding to feeling I, I, I need to, I need to have an effort. There are mm-hmm. several large pharma who have a focus and an effort on aging biology, age related disease uh, under these fundamental principles of these processes of aging. Um, so we've had significant interest. I think we're too early right now. Um, it's our desire to, to uh, build the company, but for sure down the road, we see opportunities. Um, I, I see it as sort of that, that natural evolution of skepticism to intrigue um, and interest. And I, I think it's on us, right? The onus is on the, us in this industry to develop real science, real evidence in a manner that is akin to how they develop therapeutics. And to me, from my experience in my Merck days and other, um, that was critical. And that's you know part of the reason we aligned our organization and uh, set into place processes to, to develop our therapeutics in that similar vein. But I, I see continued interest um, and I, I don't think it's going to change. It represents an entirely new space and a new way to approach disease. And whether in our case, we have a gene therapy program, which is interesting to a, 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 a discrete set of, of companies, 
And then mm-hmm. our, our small molecule program has a much more, a much broader uh, pool of uh, those interested because neurodegeneration generation is a, has still an issue and still many, many unsolved problems there, right? Um, as, as is true as well in ophthalmology. You, uh, I, I want to jump back real quick to uh, a, a point when I was asking you initially about how the company sort of differentiates itself from some of the noise in this anti-aging market. Um, if, if I asked you that question more specifically, uh, more specifically in the context of cell and gene therapy companies that are looking at anti-aging, and I'm not going to name names, but I've, I've, you know, I've had conversations with with other CEOs, other companies that are that are uh, attacking aging from a you know cell therapy uh, standpoint uh, that have had very varying degrees, I guess, over the years of of attaining a, a level of like respect, understanding, and and the appropriate perception of the approach. Um, so, if I were to ask you that question again, and, and sort of ask you how how life bio differentiates itself within in in the context of just cell therapy companies that are sort of swimming in the same pool how might you respond yeah i mean we don't focus on other companies but i can tell you what we're doing and and uh you know our science uh is is well understood in terms of we're not gene editing we're not replacing genes we're introducing transcription factors uh three genes that that can reset the epigenome and mm-hmm. that is frankly what we're doing. And I think that really separates us from um, many of the others in the field and given our intellectual property. And I, I think that's important to understand. Yeah. We're really, truly just allowing, we want the body to get back to its you know, productivity and efficiency and resilience as it was in, in, in an earlier state of life. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Good deal. What's next? Um you know, yeah. I, I was going to ask you. I, I, you know, I was going to ask you about pivoting. Like, you know, you you come in with this approach, and uh, you know, you've got a lot of opportunity to kind of take it take it wherever you, you you might. And I think you responded to that a little bit. I think you gave us some hints as to like what what uh, what the pivots might look like or where the peripheral movement might look like. But in terms of like what's directly in front of you right now to to move into clinic and what your next steps might be, what does yeah, that look our, like? Yeah, for epigenetic reprogramming platform for opti- for multiple optic neuropathy indications. Uh, we're we're charging ahead with our anti enabling program that will occur, and we'll pick that off later this year, and we expect to complete that uh, by hopefully by the end of twenty four and uh, file an IND and be in the clinic either end of twenty four or sometime in the first half of twenty twenty five. So it's exciting. Uh, we believe we're the leader in this epigenetic reprogramming space. We believe we were the first with non-human primate data this year, and we believe we're still on pace to be the first in clinic. So that's exciting for that program. Um, also, along the same lines, as I mentioned earlier, we'll continue research and development on uh, novel ways to deliver because we use AAV2. It may not be that for different organ issues, right? So we'll continue to look at other indications there and, and, and uh, continue that ongoing work. For our chaperone autophagy small molecule program, um, we have an ongoing drug discovery program, and, and, and the goal is uh, identify a, a, a candidate uh, to put into a preclinical program as soon as possible. Could be as early as next year or that we're following. So uh, exciting times ahead. Um, I, I think we've really established ourselves as a leader in this field, and um, and uh, we'll see. You know, getting to the clinic would be a big achievement for the company. 
For sure. Yeah. Uh, and and for our listeners benefit, if you'd hung on, hung in with us this long uh, and, and learned some of the fundamentals of Jerry McLaughlin's approach to building life bio, I appreciate you. And, and I want to let you know that ep, uh, he just reminded me this conversation about epigenetic reporting or I'm sorry, uh, reprogramming. Uh, my colleague, Ben Comer, uh, recently interviewed Jerry, and there'll be a story coming out this fall in Life Science Leader magazine uh, on the approach that LifeBio is taking. And I know that Ben is uh, pretty excited. He's a he's a bit of a propeller head, Ben. Sorry, Yar. He geeks out on this stuff, and, I, and I'm sure that that interview was very enlightening for both of you. Uh, but keep an eye out for that story. Uh, in the meantime, Jerry, I really appreciate the time you spent with us. I know we went uh, took you a little bit longer than probably you anticipated, but great stuff. Great insight into into the way that you built Life Bio, and I really appreciate you for it. No, Matt, I appreciate it. It was an honor and a pleasure. You have a great program. I'm I'm a uh, as I mentioned to you before, I'm a listener, and uh, so I've always enjoyed it. So it's uh, it was a great opportunity to join you here today. I appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate it too. And yeah, keep keep listening. I appreciate that. <laughs> So that's Life Biosciences CEO, Jerry McLaughlin. I'm Matt Pillar, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online, part of the Life Science Connect community, sponsored by Cytiva, whose support of new and emerging biopharma companies is on full display at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. If you like listening in on conversations like this one with Jerry, subscribe to the Business of Biotech podcast. Sign up for our newsletter at bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. Be sure to leave us a review. And as always, thanks for listening.